Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning, and welcome to our pastor's Bible class here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's. We welcome not only our participants here in our gymnasium this morning, but also welcome our listeners on KFUO 850 AM here in the St. Louis area and worldwide at KFUO.org. As is our custom in this class, we're going to be looking at the assigned scripture readings, not for today, but for one week from today, for next Sunday. So we'll be looking at the assigned scripture lessons for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, August 5. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to shower your blessings, your grace, your mercy upon us each and every day. Above all, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, for his life and death and resurrection once again, and for the forgiveness and everlasting life that is ours through him. We thank you also for your word, your revealed knowledge to us, and for this opportunity to come together and study that word. May your Holy Spirit be present and guide us in our study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, there is, as is usually the case, a strong connection next Sunday between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. Remember, thematically, those are the two that usually have a thread, a common theme, uh, running through them. And the epistle lesson often is a, kind of a standalone going through a book of the Bible. You've been noticing that we've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, during the summertime, and we'll continue that. But uh, the theme that goes through both the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson is bread. Okay? The manna that God provides for his people in the Old Testament lesson, which is from Exodus, when they are traveling to the Promised Land after they've been freed from their slavery in Egypt, and then Jesus in the Gospel lesson in John 6, referring to himself as the living bread that has come down from heaven. Okay? And so that's the common theme that we'll kind of see. Uh, we're also going to see some of God's people not in their best light also. That's sort of a sub-theme uh, that goes through. But if you look at the top of the sheet, for those who are here in the gymnasium, we'll read through the collect, which is that prayer that we say between the, uh, between the absolution usually and, and right before we read the scripture lessons. It's, it's that collect, that prayer that kind of collects the main theme or thoughts for the day. So it says here, Merciful Father, you gave your Son, here notice the theme, as the heavenly bread of life. Grant us faith to feast on him in your word and sacraments. In other words, where is that living bread found? It's found in word and sacrament. That we may be nourished unto life everlasting through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. So when we get to the gospel lesson, we'll especially be talking about Jesus as, you might say, the spiritual bread, uh, bread of life. And notice there again, feasting on him in word and sacrament, being strengthened and nourished, spiritually speaking. Okay. Now, so let's begin with the Old Testament lesson. And this is God's people out in the wilderness. Uh, we think this is approximately a month after they have left or after they've been delivered, I should say. They've left Egypt, in other words. And let's just rehearse a little bit, just some of the background. God's people have been in slavery in Egypt over 400 years, and God hears the cries of his people and plans and implements their being freed from their captivity in Egypt. Remember, he, he does a series of plagues, and the Pharaoh is unwilling to let the people go. And then comes that final plague where he says that uh, it, it, we, from which we derive the Passover. But remember, at midnight, he is going to come and strike dead every firstborn in every household. And remember what God's people were to do was to take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, take its blood, and put it on the doorpost and the lentil of the door, marking the households of God's people 
And God's promises that on that night, when he comes and the, the, sees the blood, will pass over those houses and not strike dead the firstborn. Well, that was the plague that finally convinced the Pharaoh to let, his, let God's people go. And as they're, as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind and starts pursuing God's people with his armies. And, of course, God's people would have been sitting ducks there uh, uh, when you've got Pharaoh's army coming after you. And remember the miraculous thing that God does. He parts the waters of the Red Sea. God's people go through on dry ground, not just, not just a little damp, dry ground. And then as the pursuing armies are coming, God brings those, those walls of water crashing on down once again, delivering his people. So that happened about a month before our text, and they're out in the wilderness. Um, they have, uh, let me just say this. People sometimes ask the question, how many people were there in, in the exile? In other words, was this just a small band of folks that God is leading through the wilderness? And uh, no, not at all. In fact, you might be shocked if you don't know. Uh, if you look at Numbers chapter 1, and uh, this is at verse 46, it says 603,550 men over the age of 20. Hey, let, me, let me let that sink in a little bit. 603,550 men aged 20 and above. Now, that's all we know by way of fact, but again, remember, we're not, we're not including in that anybody, any, first of all, any males under 20. We're not including any females, and we're not including any children in that number. So it, it is a speculation. We don't know exactly how many. But I've always used a, you know, a number of about 1.8 to maybe 2.5 million, something like that. If you want to figure, you know, we don't know how many women and children there were, so uh, in some respects anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's. But just on the average, if you're going to think about, you know, maybe another, at least a, a wife for, let's say, half of those guys, and, and, and then how many children are do you, you, know, do you include? So my point is, you know, if we, if we want to do a comparison, I'm not sure what the collective population is of the metro St. Louis area. I, the city of St. Louis, I know, is only about, what, 350,000 or something like that. But when you start going out into the suburbs, uh, you know, I think, isn't it about 2 million or so collectively, the, the metro St. Louis area? So if, you, if you're thinking about that in terms of a comparison, and so we normally think that they probably only traveled about 10 miles a day. You know, because you're, you're, you're talking about a lot of people here. This isn't just, you know, picking up a few tents and, and uh, well, we're off. Uh, You've got to communicate through all these people, okay? So when God provides for these people out in the wilderness, as we're going to see him doing today, this is no small accomplishment. This is no small feat on his part. He has brought his entire nation of people out of Egypt, and they were fruitful and multiplied while they were in Egypt. And so again, uh, we're just taking what the scriptures say in terms of a number. All right, let's start off. We're in Exodus 16. Uh, God's people have uh, been, first of all, they, they went to a place called Elam, and they had 12 springs of water there and 70, 70 date palm trees that were there. So a lot of water and a lot of dates <laughs> he provided for them. So now, after that experience, now we pick up. And starting at verse 2 of uh, Exodus 16, now notice what happens. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. All right, let's stop there for a second. Uh, God's people are not happy. <laughs> now, I, we sometimes are a little, maybe a little hard here on God's people. Let's remember that they are out there in that wilderness. And I don't know if you've ever, those of you that have been to that part of the world, when we say wilderness, I mean it is desolate. There is just not much out there. It is sand. It is uh, dry as can be. And so 
God's people, you know, probably after leaving Elam, are thinking, where are we going now? Where, what are we gonna, what are we gonna eat? What about, you know, water from here on out? Uh, just, you know, what's gonna happen? And one thing led to another, and you can see there, this is not just a few of the people. Notice in verse uh, two, it's the whole congregation. So we got a couple million people here that are absolutely grumbling against Moses and Aaron, the two leaders, the two brothers who are the leaders, God primarily working through Moses, but they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And what was the content of their grumbling? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Now notice, what, notice how they describe their time in Egypt. There's nothing about the hard slavery that they were doing. There's nothing about the, the hard times and struggles that they had in Egypt. It, they said, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Well, you would think they were at a resort. You know, now, isn't that the case when, you, when people get angry about something in the present and look back to the past, don't we sometimes idealize the past? Oh, we had it much better before. This is terrible. And this is exactly what God's people are doing here, you know. They, they only are remembering, first of all, according to sources I read, slaves weren't fed much meat at all. And here they're saying they sat by meat pots. You know, the idea is almost like the bottomless meat pot. They could just get as much as they wanted. Secondly, you know, they look at, we had bread to the full. Well, they probably had bread, but not necessarily to the full. So this is just, you, you see human nature here. I, I often say, when you read back even thousands of years, you see that human nature hasn't changed much, right? We, we, we get the same thing can happen today. You know, people don't like something that's going on right now. It was much better that back then. Well, they only remember maybe, maybe some of the good and maybe even elaborate that somewhat, you know? And so God's people here are very upset and notice the outlandish, first of all, they say, it would have been better for us to have been killed by God in Egypt. Well, really? Is that, is that what you really would have wanted? You know, I've, I, often, I often quip to myself, Moses and Aaron might have responded, you know, we can arrange that. <laughs> but he didn't. Uh, and so, you know, would that we have died there. And then look at the outlandish and illogical accusation. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Now, first of all, they had God's promises through Moses that he was going to deliver them and care for them. He has already been in their midst with a... Remember, how did he appear to them? How did they know God was with them? You remember? Pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, going out in front of them. That was their assurance that he was there with them, and he was actually also conversing with Moses. So it's how could they think that God, who is right there with them, who has delivered them, who delivered them in such a miraculous way, is now going to just kill them? I mean, it would, have, it would have been easier for God just to let the Egyptian armies come and wipe them out if that's what God had in mind. But again, there's, there's a ridiculous accusation, uh, and they're saying, notice, you have brought us out into this wilderness. Now, their accusation against Moses and Aaron is really an accusation against whom? Against God, absolutely. And they're going to find that out, okay? So anyway, we better go on here. Uh, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, now, so this is God talking. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Let me stop there for just a second. Who is going to be delivering the bread, Moses or God? God. Remember this, because when we get into the gospel lesson, they're going to challenge Jesus and say, well, in the wilderness, Moses provided bread for, for his people. And Jesus is going to correct them and say, it wasn't Moses, it was, it was your heavenly father. So there's the proof right there. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Now, let's stop for a second. 
Why would God only want them to gather a day's portion? Trust, exactly. If you, if you see more there, but you don't take it, you only take what you need for that day, what are you trusting? That God tomorrow is going to do what? Have it there for you again, right? And so there's an implied faith and trust that God is going to do exactly what he says, right? And um, as you might expect, there were times. Now, God's going to do this for 40 years till they get to the promised land. God's going to do this for 40 years. And there are some accounts of some of the people, I know this will surprise you, but some of the people taking more than they needed. And that extra amount that they took spoiled and got maggots in it. And so God is putting them to the test. Will you have faith and trust in me to provide for you the way I say I'm going to provide for you? Okay? There's a lot there for us, too, isn't there? God's provision for us and, and having faith and trust in that. So he says here, gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. In other words, it's going to be a bit of a test here. Are you going to do as I say and only take a day's worth, or are you going to want to hoard as much as you possibly can? So, verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Well, let's stop there for a second. So on the sixth day, now they can bring in two days' supply, twice as much. Why would that be? Seventh day would be Sabbath. God is already kind of setting up what he's going to make abundantly clear at Mount Sinai. But it is, again, that Sabbath day that even back in creation where God rested on that seventh day. And so he says on that, only on that sixth day you gather up twice as much. And guess what? On the sixth day when they gathered up twice as much, that extra amount did not spoil or get maggots. So you see God's provision here. I want to just say a word here that those who are some of the more liberal uh, critics of the Bible will try to find a way always to take the supernatural out of the miracle. To say that, well, you know, this was just a common occurrence that in this part of the world that this happened. And, you know, it, it, this is not God involved like this. God doesn't get involved like this. Well, a couple things. Number one, we've never found a natural occurrence of this, if it was supposed to have been a natural occurrence. And secondly, how do you explain that there's none on the seventh day, and, but there is on the other six days? If it's just a naturally occurring thing. So, you know, we would say no, uh, not only for those reasons, but because the scriptures say God is, is doing this exactly as he says. Okay, now, uh, let's see, so uh, verse 6 so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice here how Moses and Aaron, they were complaining about Moses and Aaron. And notice where Moses and Aaron are directing the attention back to God, not to themselves. So you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Okay? So, here again, they're going to know because God is going to provide quail for them. or it, It's translated quail as some type of game bird anyway. In the evening, they're going to be all over the camp. Then in the morning, he's going to provide this manna for them. And Moses and Aaron are saying, by this you will know. In other words, by God's provision for you, you will know that the Lord has, is the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay? So let's see what happens. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. We really don't know what this come near to the Lord 
is kind of like, it might be saying kind of gather together is, is what we're kind of thinking here. Because, again, the Lord was with them in terms of the pillar of cloud by day. So we're not really sure quite what that means. But kind of congregate together, gather together. Verse 10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So there again is God saying, is God's presence with them, God demonstrating to them he is present with them and going to connect his presence with what's going to happen here. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. So this is, you know, as the sun's going down. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He is the Lord their God, but they'll know it. They'll know it as a result of his providing for them. So verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Verse 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now, you know what, you know what the word, uh, what the phrase, uh, uh, what is it is in Hebrew? Manna. Yeah. Very good. We got some good Bible scholars in this class. Manna. So that's why it gets its name manna. In Hebrew, it's kind of man, mananu, mananu or something like that. But anyway, that's where it gets its name, manna. They don't know what it is. And frankly, we don't know exactly what it was. But, you know, it's, it was referred to earlier as bread. So we think it was when this, there was dew on the ground, and when the dew evaporated, this stuff was left. And we think it was like a bread-like substance. We just don't know for sure what it is. There's been a lot of speculation about... Um, certain types of seeds that kind of uh, congeal together we, and, and it gets dried and it's kind of like a dough or a bread. We just don't know for sure, okay? But again, it was referred to earlier as raining down bread from heaven. All right, so uh, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, okay? So, um, God, again, notice at the end there, it's God who gave them the bread. Moses never takes credit uh, for, uh, and Aaron, they never take credit for what God provides. There's going to be one time where Moses is going to strike uh, a rock and get water from it and fail to give God the glory for that, and that's the reason he's not going to be able to enter the promised land. So he's going to make that mistake one time, and it's going to cost him being able to actually enter the promised land with himself on his own two feet. He'll die before that, and Joshua will lead the people in. All right, so we see here God hearing the grumbling of his people, and instead of abandoning them for their lack of trust, lack of faith, he actually sort of concedes to them and, and uh, you know, gives in to them, we might say, and provides for them not only bread, but meat as well. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any questions or comments on this first lesson out in the wilderness? As I say, God's going to continue to do this for not, not necessarily the meat every night, but the manna is going to be there for 40 years as they're wandering in the wilderness. Okay, yes, D. Uh, what prevented them from taking more of the manna on Saturday and eating it on Saturday, you meant? Well, I guess there's really nothing that probably prevented them from doing that. I guess they probably could if they took the double provision and then started it on Sundays. Yeah, but they had to realize if they're doing that, there's not going to be any on, more on Sunday for them. You know, there's, there's, there's going to be a finite amount that they get. They get a double portion on, on Saturday. But, yeah, I suppose if... Uh, they got really hungry. They could eat some of Sunday's portion on Saturday. I don't, I, there's nothing in the, in the text that would prevent them from doing that. The only thing that would happen is if they, on other days, gathered more than a day's amount, it would, uh, we have an account that it would spoil and get maggots in it. So that they, that's kind of God's judgment on their disobeying his, his law, his rule. Okay? Any other either thoughts, questions?
before we move on? All right, let's go on. I want to jump to the gospel lesson, then we'll come back to the epistle, because the gospel lesson, as I say, is tied at least thematically with this bread, the concept of the image of bread. All right, so here we are in John 6, and we'll start off at verse 22. And we start off here, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea. Now, this is after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with how many fish? And how many? Uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, right? So two fish, five loaves of bread, feeds the 5,000 men. Again, we don't know how many women and children, so it's actually uh, surely more than 5,000 people, but 5,000 men. So this is the next day. The crowd remained on the other side of the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, that there had been only one boat there. So there was only one boat there, and who are they probably going to try and find? Jesus, right? The one who fed them. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So they saw the disciples go, and there was only one boat left, and they said they knew that Jesus hadn't entered that boat yet. And so you get the idea, they're kind of on a hunt here for Jesus. They want to find this guy who can feed so many people with five loaves of bread and two fish and heal so many people. Uh, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias. Now, Tiberias is a city on uh, sort of the southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it was built, it was named for the emperor at that time, Tiberius Caesar. And it was built, uh, uh, Herod Antipas, uh, who was the Herod when Jesus uh, walked this earth, was the guy who built it. So they, uh, they saw the boats there. They knew the disciples had gone, but they knew Jesus hadn't gotten into that boat with them. So other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're finally figuring out, we want to, they want to find Jesus. They knew the disciples had left, and they knew that Jesus hadn't gotten into the boat. So they're figuring, okay, let's get in our boats, and we're going to go up to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is in the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was, actually, you can uh, go there today. Uh, this was where Peter's house was the disciple Peter. It's a place where Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. It's where Matthew was uh, uh, collecting taxes. And it is, today if you go there, they are unearthing uh, Peter's house. And above it, a huge Roman Catholic church is built. And that Roman Catholic church actually helps shield the excavation work that's going on there. It's, a, it's a, a quite an interesting thing to see. So you can go there today and see this. Capernaum was sort of the base of operations for Jesus. In fact, the city is nicknamed the, the City of Jesus, I think, is the nickname as you come into the, into the area there. And uh, right on the Sea of Galilee, okay? So they go up to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Now, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, we, we know you didn't get into the boat with Jesus. We know there was only one boat left, and here you're over here. How did you get here? Well, what was the answer? It's today's gospel lesson. What did Jesus do? Walked on the water and calmed the storm, got into the boat with them, and went across. So they're shocked. How in the world did you get here? Um, Jesus answered them, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Ooh. <laughs> so what's he implying here? They're only seeking him because what? He fed them. Yeah, he fed them. That's why they're seeking him. He says, not, you're not seeking me because of signs. Now, what, what does he mean by signs there? John uses this word signs to refer to what? Miracles, right. This is kind of, when you read the Gospel of John, whenever he talks about signs, he's talking about the miracles that Jesus did. And one of those signs, you know, was the feeding of the 5,000, but many other signs, including, uh, 
you know, giving uh, hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind and mobility to the lame and so on. John refers to those all as signs. And so he says, you're not coming after me because you saw me do these miracles. You're coming because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And now you're hungry again, right? So verse 26, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 27. Uh, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Let's talk about that for just a second. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. So what, what does Jesus mean by the food that perishes would be what type of food? Just the regular physical food, right? In other words, don't make that your main emphasis in life, but rather the food that endures. So he's talking there figuratively, of course, about the spiritual food, the spiritual nourishment that endures. In other words, um, the, the physical food is going to spoil, isn't it? Don't, don't make that your focus. And we could even expand it beyond just food to any earthly goods, right, that are temporary in nature. They're, they're one day going to be no more, but rather the work for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, the spiritual nourishment, spiritual food. And notice here, the Son of Man is going to give that to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. It's almost like this set his seal is a little, there's a little speculation about that, but it's, if, if you go to, the, uh, if you go to uh, Schnucks or Deerberg's or any grocery store and you're going to go in the meat section, what do you want to see on the side of that roast? USDA stamp, right? And so it's kind of putting a seal on it. Uh, kind of the same concept, anyway. Uh, that's, that's not a perfect analogy. So when, when did the father demonstrate putting his seal on his son? Even before, at his baptism, right? When the voice of the father says what? This is my beloved son, right? And so he is a put his seal on him. He is the anointed one, the Christ, right? So going on here, verse 28. Then they, the, these are these people who are following after him, said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, as good Lutherans, uh, right away our antenna go up, and we're saying that's the wrong question, right? What must we do? Okay? And again, they're coming out of a works righteousness background. What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, you tell us, what are we supposed to do? And notice Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the work of God is believing. Now, let's stop for a moment and just ask the question, can we believe on our own? Is this something that we do, that we decide to do? No. Remember Luther's explanation of the third article? I believe that what? I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And it is worked by the Holy Spirit. So believing is what they need to do. That's the work of God not some other you know, physical works. That's what he wants you to do. Now, notice how they're going to perceive here. The, the hearers are going to perceive that he's talking about himself. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they almost challenge Jesus here. They're setting up sort of a, a, a challenge here. Well, Moses did this in the wilderness, you know. Uh, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. Now, what are you going to do so that we might believe? In other words, if you're claiming to be who we think you're claiming to be, what work are you going to do that we might see it and believe? Now, what... What is ironic about this? When you stop and think about what, what has already happened. He's already demonstrated. Has, I mean, 
I, I don't know if many people can feed 5,000 men uh, and who knows how many women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? They've already seen it, but they don't believe, okay? It's kind of like the disciples in today's gospel lesson. They didn't understand about the loaves. When, when Jesus is out there and calms the storm when he gets into the boat, they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. Same thing here. They've already seen him demonstrate this. And so, but he doesn't, he doesn't respond that way. And notice then Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, um, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. <laughs> you wonder, what, what are they still thinking here? This is, you got some bread we can eat and live forever? Give us some of that stuff. That's, you know, that's going to be better than what we had yesterday. So again, he, he's, he is speaking figuratively about bread from heaven. Bread was a, one of the main staple in the diet at that time. Okay? You used it, it not only filled you, but you used it to dip into bowls, and it was sort of a utensil and edible. And it was the, don't they usually, uh, there's an old saying about bread being the staff of life. Have you ever heard that? And it's sort of the, the main staple. Okay? And Jesus is, in effect, saying here, spiritually speaking, I am the main staple. I am the one. Okay? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he is saying, I am this bread that has come down from heaven to give life to the world. And spiritually speaking, whoever eats of this bread, notice, whoever believes in me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay? So a couple things here, uh, maybe just to discuss for a moment. Are there people today, do you think, that put God to the test? Yes. We're getting, for those on the radio, we're getting people shaking their head yes. Can you think of a time that uh, even Martin Luther did this? Remember? When he was uh, studying to be a lawyer at uh, the university, got caught in a huge thunderstorm and feared for his life, what did he say to God? Spare me, and I will what? Become a monk, right? And, um, you know, there are people, I always say this is, a, this is a dangerous thing really to do, is, you know, well, God, you do this for me, and then I'll do that, okay? I'll follow through with that. You heal me of this, and I'll, I'll, do, I'll be in church every Sunday. Or, you know, so there are definitely people today that want to put God to the test. In other words, you show me, and then I'll believe. And, of course, faith is just the opposite, isn't it? It trusts, it's the uh, uh, conviction of things not seen is how faith is defined, okay? It's not God, you, you do something for me, and then I'll believe. And as God's people did, uh, grumbling, and especially as these people in the, in the gospel lesson did. You know, show us something, and then we'll believe, okay? Now, the other thing, we don't want to pass by the fact, in both the gospel and the Old Testament lesson, there's another key point there, isn't there? God provided for his people what they needed out there in the wilderness. Does he still do that today for us? Answer is, obviously, yes, he does. And we mentioned this last Sunday in the sermon, we were talking about how the good shepherd provides for the sheep of his flock. That he richly and daily, as Luther says, provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. So even though Jesus is talking, spiritually speaking, about bread in the gospel lesson, we don't want to misunderstand um, or kind of pass over and not recognize also that this same compassionate God provides for us physically each and every day of our lives. We may refer to the things as ours and our own, but they, they ultimately are a gift of a gracious God to us. Okay? So that will be next Sunday here. Now Jesus talking about the bread of life in John chapter 6. Okay? Any questions or comments on this, on this John 6, before we move to the 
epistle lesson. None? All right, let's go to the epistle lesson. I mentioned we're working through the book of Ephesians. And the main theme that we're going to be looking at here today is unity. Unity, okay? That we, there is a unity that we all share as Christians. Now, the main thing we have to remember about this unity is unity in Christ something that we manufacture, that we create, that we make? No. It is God-made unity. God is the one who creates this unity in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we share together as Christians. Okay? And we can't manufacture it ourselves. We sometimes will talk about the unity that we share in Christ. We, we are baptized into that unity, I guess you could say, when we are baptized in the name of the triune God. There is also, though, a harmony that we talk about at times. Now, that, that is something we can work at. Harmony is how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We try to live in harmony. And we're going to see here Paul talking to the Ephesian Christians about how they can maintain that unity. In other words, they don't create it, but they try and maintain it. And he's going to help them understand how they can do that. Okay? So let's um, start with Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. Paul is going to speak here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, Paul is actually in prison at this point. It's actually house arrest in Rome. This is one of four, Ephesians is one of four what are called prison epistles written by uh, Paul from uh, being in, in jail. Uh, there's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are the four that are what we have been characterized as prison epistles. So I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, or to live before God, you might say, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what's he really saying here? Live appropriately as Christians, right? When you, you walk in a manner worthy, it's another way of saying, live your life in an appropriate way as a Christian who has been called. That's your, your calling is, is the, to the Christian faith, okay? Now, notice the virtues, that characteristics that he talks about here in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And notice here, eager to, what? Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't tell them, you know, you, you try and make unity or establish unity. Just maintain it. God's already done it. What about those virtues there? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. How are those, as Christians living together in a congregation, how are those good characteristics to try to, uh, uh, if you think of the opposite of those things, uh, how are these good characteristics that they should try to have as they live with one another? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. How are those good things? Yes, they, they all are kind of rooted in love, aren't they? And, of course, we love because God first loved us. And so they are rooted in sort of in love for my fellow uh, Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? They're all kind of, if you think of what's, what's the uh, opposite, what would you say is the opposite of humility? Pride, arrogance, wanting my own way, right? I want it because it's my way. No, humility, we don't look at ourselves. Whose needs do we put before our own, in fact, when we're humble and think more highly of some others, yeah, of other people. So see, it's not, it's not about me. It's not about what I want, you know. It's about my brothers and sisters in Christ first. By the way, these are, are great in marriage as well, but, but here we're talking about living together in, in, as Christians. How about gentleness? The opposite of that would be sort of what? Would be the opposite of gentleness. 
Rough, okay, yeah. Uh, kind of a bull in a china shop, you know that expression? Uh, gonna run over everybody and everything, right? Again, kind of me-centered, uh, get my way. And uh, patience. And notice there is, is a great translation, bearing with one another. Uh, you know, there are times where we have to be patient, right? And sometimes the phrase long-suffering, long-suffering, <laughs> that, that we bear with someone else doesn't mean that we turn our back and we don't talk with them again because we don't like something about them. Doesn't mean that we hold a grudge against them because they didn't back us on something we really thought was important. We bear with one another. When you stop and think about it, in the Christian congregation, we have people that, in one sense, wouldn't we wouldn't ordinarily associate with one another, would we? I mean, some of you know each other from other circles, I guess. But ordinarily, we wouldn't. the thing that's brought us together is our common bond in Christ. So there are going to be differences. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different, different ages. And there are going to be differences. And Paul says here, if we're going to maintain that unity, be humble, be uh, uh, gentle, you know, patient, bearing with one another, okay? And then eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so often, you know, when, when congregations get into conflict, it's... A, a certain group wants something a certain way, and another group wants something another way. And I've, I've even heard of con conflicted congregations where they can't even remember how it started. It's been going on for so long, they, they can't even remember what the, what the original thing was that got them into conflict. And Paul is saying here, you know, maintain the unity that you have, and be humble, be gentle, uh, bear with one another. You know, he's even... By saying bear with one another, he's admitting that there are going to be times when people are hard to live with, even in the congregation. Bear with them. And who's the ultimate example of this? Christ, right? He perfectly emulated all of those characteristics. Think of how long-suffering he was with those disciples, who just, as Pastor Smith said in the sermon this morning, just didn't seem to get it, just didn't seem to understand. In fact... In Acts chapter 1, one of the most disappointing questions, when Jesus is about to ascend, and the disciples are coming out with him, and they're sensing that something big is going to happen, and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you at this time? Is this going to be the time you set up your earthly kingdom now, and we get to reign with you? And I've often said, I would love to have seen the expression on Jesus' face when the disciples asked that question. Remember those commercials, I could have had a V8, you know, he must have just thought, oh, come on. You guys have been with me all this time, including 40 days after Easter, when he's, he's meeting with them and teaching them, opening their minds to the scriptures, as Luke says, and they ask him that question. So Jesus was long-suffering to, to, the, to the hilt. All right, we better, we better go on. Um, verse 4, uh, there is one body and one spirit... Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Gee, that kind of sounds like a hymn or a creed, doesn't it? Verses 4 through 6, that's exactly what we think it was. That it was an early Christian creed, perhaps, or an early hymn, and Paul is simply quoting it here. Notice it goes in... It is, it is Trinitarian, You've got, but it's in reverse order. You've got the Spirit in verse 4, one Lord, we think is a reference to Christ, the confession that Jesus is Lord, and in verse 5, and in verse 6, you've got the Father. So it goes Spirit, Son, Father. And notice, though, what, what bonds us together? There is one Lord, one faith, in other words, and it's, it's, it's referring there to the, the common things that we believe together. There is one faith. And notice there is one baptism, Trinitarian baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit baptized into the triune God. Those are the things that unite us together, that bond of unity. And again, notice that is all God done. That is not something that we do, okay? So, 
that's why we do not. If someone comes to us and they, they have been baptized, let's say, in a, in a Methodist church or Episcopal church or wherever, our only question is, were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And if they were baptized in one of those churches, they should have been and would have been. And we don't rebaptize because, again, it is baptism, one baptism that we share together as Christians that brings us into the body of Christ and creates that unity that we have together as Christians. Okay? Uh, one God and Father of all who is over all and in uh, over all and through all and in all. So again, the Father is, you know, dominates his creation, has authority over his creation. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, we all have received grace according to what Christ has, has delivered it out, not more to some and some to others, but the same. Then uh, he quotes Psalm 68:19, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I should say it's not the first quote from Psalm 68 is referring to God. Here he's using it for specifically for Christ. Let me ask you this. What are the captives that Christ released? Who are the captives that Christ released? When did Christ ever release captives? I don't remember that account. Who are the captives that Christ released? Us, yeah, us. We were captive to what? To sin and death and Satan. And by his life, death, and resurrection, he released us from our captivity. Just as God in the Old Testament, we talked in the book of Exodus when we were there, God releasing his people from their slavery in Egypt, Christ has released us from our captivity, led a host of captives. Uh, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? Meaning he ascended, he also had descended. We think that's not referring to the descent into hell, but rather simply his incarnation here on earth. Um, into the lower regions, the earth, or as it says there, the earth. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So Christ, again, the, the uh, authority of Christ. And he gave, now here's what, he gave the gifts to men. What are those gifts? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what are the gifts that Christ gave to his church after he ascended? Verse 11. Who are the apostles, first of all? Same as the disciples, uh, with one addition. Well, actually, I should say two additions. Uh, you got uh, who is the disciple that comes in afterward and replaces Judas? Matthias, right? Remember? The lot fell to Matthias. And then the other apostle that was not one of the 12 originally uh, is Paul, right? On the road to Damascus, the risen Christ appears to him and and sends him out with authority, an apostle. So one gift was the apostles, and what did the, the apostles do? They established the teaching that they heard from Christ, and it's that same apostolic teaching that we follow today. We, we confess in the creed, we believe in what? One holy Christian and apostolic church, based on the teaching of the apostles, the prophets and the apostles, but... New Testament, the teaching of the apostles, right? And if you, if you veer from the teaching of the apostles, you are an apostate. You are not following apostolic teaching. The prophets were given as, as gifts to the church. The evangelists, we don't know. I, I've always preferred the, that he's talking actually about missionaries here. There are some people that say, well, it's the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's possible. I'll concede that's possibly what he's referring to here. But at the time this is written, uh, frankly, uh, uh, John, the Gospel of John, isn't going to be written for another 35 years at least. So 
probably talking about missionaries. Now, the one that's the big, and we could spend, whoa, we're out of time here. We could spend a lot of time on this, but uh, shepherds and teachers. Who are shepherds? Pastors, right. Shepherds and teachers. Now, there's the big controversy. Should this be shepherds, comma, and teachers? And uh, the LCMS, its Commission on Theology and Church Relations, has come down on the side of no comma, just referring, it's, it's shepherds and teachers is referring to pastors. Uh, I remember going through seminary when that Commission on Theology and Church Relations document came out, and we had some seminary students who had been former teachers. They were not happy with that document uh, when it came out. But the whole idea here is that whether we put the comma, wherever we put it, if we put a comma or not, the idea is God has established these and given these gifts. Christ has given these gifts. Um, notice there, for the equipping, or we can say that it's almost like the outfitting of the saints. Like you're getting the saints ready for battle, and you're putting on a, a, a suit of armor or a protective clothing. It's for the outfitting, the equipping of the saints. And, of course, as God's saints, we are in a battle here around us. Uh, for the work of ministry, there's a whole other controversy, but we won't get into that at this point, about the work of ministry. And for building up the body of Christ, okay? So that's the reason these offices were given. That unity is maintained. The one thing they all have in common is the Word of God and the pro proclamation and teaching of the Word of God. Uh, verse 14, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that, you know, if you're growing in the word and you're being instructed in the word, you're not so vulnerable to be led astray by false teaching and by false doctrine. And then finally, uh, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. Boy, there's... We could talk about that also. You know, you can be right and have the correct answer, and it's the truth, but you express it in such an unloving way that it's still sinful. I remember, I, won't, I obviously won't say who, but I was at it was my first LCMS convention. You know, I graduated from the seminary, and, and yeah, new guy, he can, go to the, he can go to the convention as our pastoral delegate. And this was in Indianapolis in 1986. I remember a guy getting up, <clears throat> and uh, making his point from the floor, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I agree with everything you said, but the way you said it, I do not agree with at all, you know? I agree with you, but I sure don't agree with the way you said it. And on the other hand, you can be all loving and gushy, but what you're saying isn't true. Both have to come together, right? The truth in love. There's a, there's a way to express the truth that is loving and respectful to people, and that's what we are to do. Um, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from which the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay? So again, that, that oneness, that unity that is created by God in us, and we, with the Spirit's help, working through the Word, through the sacraments, maintain that unity with one another. Okay? All right. That's enough. We're out of time, unfortunately. So let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.